in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're continuing our way through the, through the text this morning. Before we uh, jump in, uh, just for the sake of those guests who are visiting us for the first time this morning, I thought it would be helpful uh, just to just to read, starting at the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1, all the way down to verse 13. Uh, just uh, for their sake, uh, for those of you who are visiting with us for the first time this morning, again, we just want you to know how glad we are that you're here and visiting with us, and uh, we consider it a joy and a blessing that you are visiting with us. Uh, and at the same time, we, we want you to be able to understand the, uh, the full range of what's happening here within the scripture. Um, if, you, if you're familiar at all with how we approach the scriptures here at First Baptist Church, we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And so if you're attending with us for the first time, you're coming in uh, in the mid, sort of like walking into the middle of a conversation. There are certain elements and portions of it that you may not fully aware or uh, understand what's going on. So just to, just to familiarize ourselves with where we're at in the, in the book of First Timothy, we'll start in verse 1. Uh, we'll read all the way down to verse 13. So we know what we're talking about, and then, uh, and then we'll pray, we'll ask for God to help us, and then we'll get to work. 1 Timothy 3, 1, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. The women, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence that is in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray, and uh, then we'll, we'll get to work. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. And Lord, we know that in, in any avenue of service, there is, there is sacrifice. There is the pursuit of putting others ahead of yourself, of seeking out the needs and the interests of those around you, even to the neglect of your own interests and your own needs. As a result of that, Father, we find ourselves in a culture that is increasingly looking out only for numero uno, for number one. We find ourselves increasingly in a culture that cares only about asserting individual rights and individual practices and doesn't care for the greater good of the community. 
as we look at the leadership, Father, as described by you in your word, we find, Lord, that you're calling for men of character to serve your church. And as we come to the end of this description this morning, there is a promise of reward from you if we would serve your, your people in your house. And so I pray, Lord, as we conclude this study on serving as deacons, as we bring this time to get to a close this morning, this, this time of looking and reflecting at servants within your church, I pray, Father, that you would show those who are gathered here that there is a promise of blessing There's a promise of joy. There is a guarantee that you make to bring honor and blessing to those who will seek out the interests of your people and put the needs of others first. And I pray, Lord, that you'd use this verse this morning to begin even now raising up a new generation of deacons, a new generation of servants, Lord, to serve your people here at First Baptist Church. We pray that you would do that in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine was having a birthday, and I decided, Shanti and I decided, that what we would do is we would, we would prepare a really nice home-cooked meal. We were going to cook steak, and then we were thinking about different side dishes that we could pair with the steak uh, in order to bless our friend, and uh, the suggestion was made half-jokingly, you know, we could do mac and cheese. Mac and cheese to go with steak. Uh, that's a very... Uh, you know, a very basic side dish. It's quite common to most Canadian menus. Uh, And we said this kind of jokingly with each other, but then I began to investigate and I began to research and I thought to myself, isn't there a way where we could do mac and cheese really well so that it would become a true gourmet dish that would go along with a nice steak? And so we began to do some researching on the internet and looking at different recipes. And do you know what we came up with? Gorgonzola mac and cheese. Anybody here ever heard of gorgonzola cheese before? Okay. And I knew Dustin Savage's hand would be up because he is a culinary artiste, and so he likes to cook in the kitchen. Gorgonzola. Now, I'm not a fan of blue cheese, okay? Blue cheese is just a little too blue for my taste. It's a little too tangy, if you know what I mean. Uh, And so I wasn't really sure what to make of gorgonzola. I'd never really had it before. I'm a simple kid from Texas. We don't do the fancy cheeses all that much. Just basic cheddar is what I know. And uh, so I thought I would just try some gorgonzola. It's a type of blue cheese, but it's more mild. It's not as blue, if you will. It's not as tangy or as tart as a full-on blue cheese. And I tried it, and it was good. I liked it. So I said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make gorgonzola pancetta mac and cheese. Pancetta is a type of Italian sausage that we were going to mix in. And we spent probably about three and a half hours making mac and cheese, whereas the steaks fried up in the space of about 10 minutes. I mean, it was unbelievable the amount of time and the energy that went into the crafting of this dish. You had to bring it to a slight, a slight boil, but it couldn't be too hot because you'll burn the cheese, and there's all these different things that go into it. In terms of slicing and dicing the pancetta, there was a, a fine practice there. Same deal. You had to sear this in a pan, but you couldn't get it too hot or the meat would burn, but you wanted the fat to render And again, some of you guys are like, what does that even mean? Trust me, it's a long, complicated process. That's what you need to take away from this. But my kids were waiting, and our friend was waiting to celebrate this birthday. And we we thought, okay, we'll be in the kitchen for about an hour. And then about three hours later, we were just about ready to eat. It took us that long to do this particular dish. 
when we finally sat down and served the meal, it was the best tasting mac and cheese you had ever had. I know that I'm bragging when I say that, but it is a boast that was well earned. Okay? I mean, it tasted fantastic. And I'm just going to throw this out there as a plug. If you want to spend two and a half hours doing something delicious with mac and cheese out of the ordinary, you're, you're, you're done with the box and the microwave, you want to actually have a real mac and cheese dish, I highly recommend Gorgonzola mac and cheese with pancetta. Okay? It was fantastic. But the thing that struck me as we served this dish, and we were tired and ready to eat, we served this dish around, there were two responses from those who were gathered there at the table. Number one, it tasted really delicious. They liked it. They enjoyed it. You could tell just from the moment. There's the steak. The steak looks good, but everybody's like, we got to try the mac. The first fork went into the macaroni and cheese. That was the first thing they wanted to taste. Not the steak, the mac and cheese that we'd labored over for so long. And as soon as they tasted it, you could just see it on their faces. It was different. It was delicious. It tasted good. They liked it. And then they reflected on the time and the energy that went into making this elaborate dish. And they knew that all of that time in the kitchen had been spent for them just to taste the pleasure of this mac and cheese. For my part, for me and Shanti, stepping back away from that, we enjoyed doing that. We enjoyed spending that time. We enjoyed the look on their faces. We were happy to bless our friends with a well-cooked meal. It took time, it took effort, it took energy, it took research. But when they were filled with joy, and when we sat down to enjoy each other's company, it was worth it. There's this tendency we have in this day and age to look at all of life and try to approach every question with only one guiding principle, expediency convenience. We want to get what we need. We want to get it fast. We want it quick. We want it now. But when we come to the scriptures, we find that there are things in life that are worth the wait. We find that there are things in life that are worth the time and the investment, that there is a deeper joy, a greater pleasure, a higher happiness that can be had only when we invest time over the long haul when we exhibit faithfulness in the same direction over a long period with consistency. And that's what we find when we look here in 1 Timothy 3. We find deacons, men who have served, and we think, what is the payoff for that? What is the reward for coming to the church and meeting the needs of others day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out? Where is the payoff? Where is the reward? And Paul anticipates this question, why should we put others ahead of ourselves? Why should we serve the needs of others over looking to our own needs? He anticipates that there's going to be this dilemma in our mind where we're going to say to ourselves, I you know, for the sake of convenience, for the sake of expediency, we prefer the fast food form of spirituality. We want it quick and fast. We want a spirituality where we can just hit the drive through and experience blessings with minimal, minimal effort. And Paul is emphasizing here that when it comes to church leadership, there's nothing quick, fast, or easy about it. It's a slow, steady burn. 
he makes this statement regarding the character of deacons. And as we've looked at this passage, we understand that in order to grow and to develop in this character, this is a long process of sanctification. This is a long time that these men have to pursue their walk with God, they have to grow in wisdom, and a long time God is working in their lives in order to bring them to a place to where they are men of high character and high caliber. They are men you can trust. Then they are called to serve. And here is the promise of reward that Paul talks about for these men who serve as deacons. Verse 13, those who serve well as deacons, notice the verbs here. They serve as deacons, then when they serve well as deacons, they gain a good standing. They gain a good standing. And so often when we talk about our walk with God, we recognize that everything we have from God is a gift from God. It is an act of grace. It is something that he gives us. And yet when we look at positions of service within the church, we understand that to be afforded the opportunity to serve, while that is an act of grace, if you serve well, you are earning something. You are gaining something. He makes a statement here, those who serve well as deacons gain, first off, they gain a good standing. It is theirs by right. They've earned it. This is not salvation. We understand that when it comes to going to heaven, none of us can earn our salvation. That is a gift from God. But when it comes to serving well as deacons, there's a reward where if you serve well, you earn it. It's yours by right. And what is it that you earn? He makes a statement here, a good standing, first of all. That's the first thing he says, a good standing, and also great confidence. There are two benefits to serving as a deacon. Number one, a good standing. The Greek word here for this is bathmon. It literally is referring to a step on a ladder. The idea that Paul is trying to draw to our attention here is that when you serve well as a deacon, when you serve the church, you put the needs of others ahead of yourself, you get a step up. You get a little bit higher up on the rung, if you will, on the ladder of of within the church. Now, that's not to say that they're more valuable. That's not to say that God loves deacons more than you, but it is an indication that within the church, there are men that stand head and shoulders above the other men. We can identify them, and we are naturally drawn to them to admire them. They are lifted up as a result of their service. We recognize their service, and we cannot help but note that these are men who steadfastly put the needs of others ahead of themselves. And so when we step back and we're looking for role models, when we're looking for heroes, we cannot help but name the names of those men whom we see day in and day out serving us, sacrificing for us. And the scripture says when they do that, when deacons serve well, they earn by right, they earn by right the admiration of God's people. They earn the right to be heroes here at First Baptist Church. Not only that, but the second thing that they get is they get for themselves a great confidence that is in the, in the Lord. This is an interesting word. It's one of those words that you can translate a number of different ways. It can be translated confidence. It can be translated boldness. Uh, the literal meaning of the word is uh, the, the Greek word here, parousion, to speak everything, to say whatever. Uh, that's the idea of it. And the idea that I think Paul is alluding to here is when they get this confidence in the Lord, when they receive that, there is a courage that comes where they are not afraid to be forthright, to be, to be 
uh, you know, clear in their presentation of the gospel truth. We have all been in those situations where we're talking to people and uh, the statement is made, you know, oh, well, I don't, I don't believe in a six-day creation. That's crazy. You'd have to be crazy to believe in that sort of thing. We've been in situations where uh, we, we've come up against people who say, I don't see how anybody could believe in a God. You know, the earth is, is cyclical. We, we're in this universe that just goes on and on and on for all of, for, forever. And it, the, the way that it came about was by natural processes. And, and so to even believe that there's a God out there, you'd have to be crazy to believe a, that there's a God out there. Now, you've probably found yourself in a situation where someone was making fun of your faith. You know, Easter is around. I don't see how anybody could believe in somebody coming back from the dead. That's ludicrous. I mean, clearly he died and, you know, he's still dead to this day, this Jesus character. Good moral teacher, but he's still dead. You found yourself in those situations. And you've perhaps wanted to speak to those situations, to stand up and say, hey, I'm a Christian, and here's what I believe, knowing full well that it would only earn you mockery and ridicule. What's interesting is that deacons are described here as earning a confidence, receiving a boldness from the Lord as a result of their service to the church. And this is the thing that, inc- that strikes me every time when I pause to reflect on it. He makes a statement, those who serve well, they get a step up, as it were. They get a good standing in the church. And they also get a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul, through the inspired word, draws a connection between our ability to have courage to speak graciously, but nonetheless to speak in hostile circumstances of the truth of the gospel. He connects that with our willingness to put the needs of others first. What is the connection? Think with me for a moment. What is the connection between an individual who routinely, consistently puts the needs of other individuals ahead of his own What is the connection between that and a courage to speak in a hostile situation to the truth of Jesus Christ? For the longest time, I've puzzled over this. I thought about it. And I'm going to hazard a guess. The scriptures promise us that the reward for serving well as a deacon is great confidence. There seems to be a connection between service and courage. But it doesn't exactly, in this verse, it doesn't exactly draw that connection explicitly for us. But from my own observations, this is what I have found. When you serve others, they look to you for leadership. They naturally defer to you. They depend upon you. They value your counsel. They value your wisdom. And when they are with you in those circumstances, in those situations where the faith is being mocked or ridiculed or belittled, as they have done for so long, they defer to the servant leader who is with them. They defer to the champion to lead the charge. And for the servant leader who is there time and again, as you have cared for the sick, as you have ministered to the needs of the brokenhearted, as you have desperately sought to build the faith of those around you, when you find yourself in a situation 
where you need courage. Christ meets you there, not only for your sake, but for the sake of those who have begun to look to you for leadership. And you recognize in your own heart all these guys that I have spent so much time laboring to help build them up in the faith, they're looking to me to see what I'm going to say in this moment. And somewhere in that moment, that's where Christ meets you. And that's where he gives you that confidence. You know you're going to take a pounding. I'm a Christian. Ah, you're an idiot. You know you're going to be ostracized or worse. But everyone's counting on you. And you don't want to disappoint them. That's a part of it. Paul says, if you serve well as a deacon, you gain, you earn a good standing. That's something you earn. But you look at this next portion. He doesn't say anything about earning. He says they gain a good standing for themselves and they also get great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is a reward that has practical applications in the present. But it is also worth noting that there's a reward for serving the king that comes in the hereafter. When we talk about uh, service within the church, sometimes we flatten everything down. We don't draw distinctions between certain things. We say it's all the same. One sin is the same as another sin. And becoming a Christian, and regardless of whatever you do as a Christian, it's the same as any other Christian. We're all going to heaven at the end of the day. But when we look to the scriptures, we find that that, while there is a certain truth to that, that's not the whole truth. First off, not all sins are the same. Let's be careful when we look at these different nuances and these different distinctions. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a statement to the effect that if a person lusts after another woman, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. From that, it becomes very commonplace to hear Christians saying that lust, therefore, is the same as adultery. That is not what Jesus said. Jesus did not make them the same He said the act of the heart was the same. And so we are mistaken to say that all sins are the same. It's really just a matter of what's going on in your heart. There are worse sins. And the scriptures point this out. In Matthew 5, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus shows that there is, in fact, a different severity when it comes to sin, depending on the level of the sin. Confronting uh, Tyre and Sidon, he says, that, uh, he says to Tyre and Sidon in Matthew chapter 10, he says, I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable on the day of, of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. And he goes on to say, if the works that had been performed here among you, Bethsaida, among you, Chorazin, Tyre and Sidon, if the works that had been performed there amongst you had been performed in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And he goes on to make the statement, on the day of judgment, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Tyre and Sidon. Well, what does that mean? It means that there are differing degrees of punishment. 
And this is explicitly stated when Jesus is talking to Pontius Pilate at his trial. He makes the statement to Pontius Pilate when speaking to him. He said, he who delivered me over to you has, and he makes this statement, the greater sin. When we say that all sins are the same, what we do is we flatten everything down and we make it all equivocal. We are sinners. All of us are in a state of rebellion against God. That is the same amongst all of us. But to say that all of our actions, all of the different ways in which we sin are the same, is to ignore the plain teaching of Scripture. There is a quantitative difference between adultery and lust in terms of the impact it has on the marriage. If a man engages in lust, does that hurt his wife? It absolutely does. But if a man goes out and has an affair, does that just absolutely destroy the marriage on a level far above looking at pornography? It absolutely does. At the end of the day, he is a sinner. What he has done is wrong, but the actions and the ways in which he has manifested that sin cannot be said to be equal. The same is true now for service within the church. Rewards are not equal. A couple of different passages that I just want to draw your attention to. Don't flip there, just listen. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount. Same sermon where he talks about lust and adultery. He says, when you pray, you go into your room, you shut the door, and you pray to your father who is in secret. And when your father who sees you in secret, he will reward you. Further on in that very same chapter, he says, When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. He's saying that they are fasting, but they're fasting for the wrong audience in order for the crowd to observe the fact that they're fasting. He says, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The crowds that saw these guys fasting, the fact that they're fasting in order that other people would see them, Jesus says they've gotten what they were looking for. That's their reward. He goes further, but you, truly I say to you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. In other words, take a shower, put on some fresh clothes. He says that your fasting may not be seen by others, but only by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. So Jesus is talking about the fact that there are rewards in the Christian life. Paul spells out the qualitative difference in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want you to flip there and I want you to look with me really quick. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And again, the church at Corinth has all kinds of struggles, all kinds of difficulties. But in 1 Corinthians 3.10, Paul alludes to the fact that he is serving them. And he's trying to show them that there is no difference between one leader to another leader. They're having these factions. They're claiming that this leader is better than that leader. And Paul's point is to say that all are servants of Christ. And he makes this statement in 1 Corinthians 3.10, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I have laid a foundation, but someone else is building upon it. Talking about the church. 
The church is established by Christ. The church is built upon the gospel. Somebody came along, somebody preached the gospel. Paul says that was him. He preached the gospel. He laid the foundation. He helped to establish the church in Corinth. He's not there with them right now. Somebody else is there, and that other person is now building on the work that Paul has established. He says someone else is building upon it. He says let each one take care how he builds upon it. Now, he's using a metaphor of construction to talk about things that are considered ministry. He's not talking about actual physical labor. He's talking about what happens within the church, whether you give a word of encouragement to someone, whether you pray for someone, whether you're trying to bless someone, whether you're trying to figure out the soundboard in the back of the room, whether you're handing out coffee in the fireside room after church, whether or not you're volunteering to help out with VBS. He's talking about ministry, but he is utilizing this metaphor of construction to show the difference that he's driving at. And here's what he says. No one can lay a foundation other than the one that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But if anyone builds on that foundation, look at what he says here, with gold, silver, precious stones. We understand all of that to be very beautiful, very pricey things. And then he contrasts that with this next list. Or wood, hay, straw, these are very cheap things. He says, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, my, my Bible has day capitalized there. This is talking about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. He says, the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each person has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, look at this, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, notice this, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Whatever service we perform in the church, if we are truly serving our king, the word of God promises that there will be a reward in that. Jesus makes a statement in Matthew. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who gives a child a cup of cold water in my name will surely not lose his reward. Even the smallest acts of kindness and love are promised to be blessed by God. But we're wrong to say that every type of service is the same. Because not every type of service involves the same kind of sacrifice. To give someone a cup of water, to serve in VBS, to volunteer in the sound booth, these are great things which undoubtedly will be met by the Lord with gratitude. But to be a deacon and to serve well as a deacon is to say that at the end of the day, when everything goes sideways, the people in this church, they will still get to go home, but the buck stops here. I don't go home until this thing is right. As long as it takes, as long as it goes on, I will make sure that when the sun comes up tomorrow morning, to the extent that God helps me, 
we will have a sound, solid, stable church here. For the majority of us in this room, in just a short period of time, we're going to get a cup of coffee over here in the fireside room. We're going to talk for a little while. And as the hour progresses, we're going to go out, we're going to get in our cars, and we're going to leave. For the majority of you in this room. But for a handful of men in this room, they're going to wait patiently until you leave. And they're going to make sure the building is locked. They're going to make sure the facilities are secured. And more importantly, they're going to wait for as long as it takes in order to talk to you, in order to visit with you. And you can stay here all day, and those men are going to stay here all day with you. They're not going to rush you. I pray to God they don't rush you. I'll be honest, sometimes I've rushed you. Yeah, huh, that's great. Okay, yeah, you see what I'm doing here? I'm looking at my watch. Did you notice that? Let me show you. Okay, there I am. Don't you have somewhere you need to be, man? Like, come on, let's go. You know, I, I admit, I've been guilty of that on occasion. Not that overt, not that overt, but you know, we've all done that. But for deacons who have a heart to serve the Lord, for pastors as well, they're here to make sure it goes okay. They assume that responsibility. And the sacrifice that is involved in that is greater than other sacrifices. And the scriptures promise, and you recognize this, the scriptures promise that when we see them doing that, we can't help but admire them for it. They get a good step or a good standing in the church. And when they recognize that, they're also blessed by God with a greater confidence that is in the faith that is in Christ Jesus, a greater boldness. That's the immediate reward that is given by God. But if you're in 1 Timothy, I want you to zoom way back out for a second. Let me tell you why we need deacons. We sometimes lose the plot when we get down looking at a single verse. We zoom in on, it's like being in a forest and zooming in at, the, at a leaf, looking at the little veins in the leaf, and you'll lose the forest for the sake of the leaf. Sometimes we do that when we look at the scriptures. But now I want you to zoom way back out, and I want you to flip back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Go all the way back to verse 1 and look at Paul's major statement that he makes right out of the gate to Timothy in verse 3. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, stay at Ephesus. Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul's concern, the thing that he's driving at, the thing that gets him to sit down and to begin writing is this fear that things are going sideways in Ephesus, this fear that people are coming in and with these different teachings, they are subverting the gospel. They're taking away the beauty that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. They're undermining our ability to have a direct relationship with Jesus. That's the thing that Paul is concerned about. So he sits down and he writes to Timothy. And as he's writing to Timothy, he says, I 
just want you to know I'm the worst of sinners. But God had grace on me. So here's what you need to do. You need to be committed and devoted to correcting these things. Then he starts to talk about the church. Hey, in the church, I want men to pray lifting holy hands. I want women to dress modestly. And when it comes to appointing leaders, here's the character that you're looking for. And he begins to spell it all out. It takes a great amount of time, all of chapter 3, almost all of chapter 3. He comes to the tail end of chapter 3, which Pastor Al touched on last week, and he says, I hope to come to you soon. Verse 14, 314. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. That statement comes at the end of this long passage talking about qualifications for leaders within the church. To serve well as a deacon, number one, there is an immediate reward for you. An increased standing and a greater confidence. But to serve well as a deacon, I am convinced there is an even greater reward that will be revealed to you at the coming of our Lord. Because when you serve well as a deacon, you protect the church from heresy. You protect the church from doctrinal deviations. You uphold the gospel. You keep the flame of the good news of Jesus Christ lit so that it can shine not only to this generation, but to generations to come. You provide a foundation so that others may stand upon your shoulders you are admired by me. And for the young people who are here today, I know that at this point in your life, at the start of your careers, as you're coming to the end of your education, you're thinking to yourself, what can I do that will be meaningful? What goal can I pursue where I come to the end of my life and I will be satisfied and I will know that I have not labored in vain, that I have not chased after the fleeting and empty things of this world. And I want to present to you this, serve in your church. Aspire to the character necessary to be a deacon. Desire those things. There's nothing wrong with wanting and desiring to serve in that capacity within the church. If there was, why would Paul hint at the fact that there's an immediate reward for doing so? Clearly, he's trying to entice us to pursue these things for a reason. The larger reason is protecting the gospel. The ultimate reason is for glorifying Jesus Christ. And the reward is there for you to gain a good standing amongst your peers and to grow deeper and stronger in your confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Why wouldn't you want that reward? So often I encounter people who say, oh, you know, I can't be a deacon. I'm not ready for that. And I can appreciate those concerns. They're looking at their life and they're saying, I don't have the character. I don't feel like I'm there. I don't feel like I measure up. And you absolutely do need to evaluate your character before considering this calling, before pursuing this office. But to say that I don't measure up and to use that as some sort of a justification for continuing to stay exactly as you are, that is light years away from what Paul is actually trying to encourage us all to. It's one thing to say you don't measure up and you're striving for it. 
It's another thing to say you don't measure up and you're content not to measure up. We should all seek to be servants in the household of God. We began our worship this morning saying simply that I would rather be a doorkeeper or a floor mat so long as I was in the house of the Lord. For one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. We should desire these things. But this is an important aspect to meditate on. Serving well as a deacon in the church is not a one-day thing, a one-and-done flash in the pan. It's a slow, steady burn. It comes after years and years and years of faithfulness. A lot of people say, I want to do great things for God. And they think that they'll have those things accomplished by morning. And what we find with the Lord is that serving Him is a calling upon us for a lifetime. It's easy for folks to come into any church and to be here for a couple of weeks and to look around and say, well, they do this and that's wrong and they've got this issue over there and that's a problem. It's easy to walk in and to spot the fly in the ointment. Anybody can do it. You know what's really hard? is rolling up your sleeves, investing, committing, loving, and serving in such a way as to make the church a better place. I don't have a lot of regard for guys who come in and they're here one, two, three weeks and they think they've got it all figured out, they know everything there is to know, and here's what we need to do in order to make this church better. Not even for one second recognizing that a church consists of people. And those people have hearts and souls that need to be loved and cared for. And some of those problems are real, absolutely. But the solutions to those problems are not simply a bark out like a Marine Corps drill instructor and say, you do this now. It requires a gentle hand, a heart of love. It can't be fixed overnight. It's something that calls for patience, a slow, steady burn. That's what it calls for. I myself admire very much so the deacons in our church. Oh, and I should probably mention this. If you're thinking you're going to become a deacon because then Pastor Josh will stand on the pulpit and say nice things about you, I only come to a text like this once every 20 years. So if that's what you're looking for, it probably won't happen again. But we're here, so I am talking about our deacons and how awesome they are, okay? They are awesome. Yesterday afternoon after the new members class, I went with Joe O'Reilly over to the hospital to visit Percy Howard. It breaks my heart that some of you, particularly the younger ones among you, haven't had the privilege and the joy of getting to know Percy. Percy is a great man of God. So is Joe for that fact. Percy served this country faithfully in World War II. He fought his way up Juneau Beach. He was there at Normandy on D-Day. He fought his way across Europe. He helped liberate a continent from Nazi oppression. A lot of guys come home from the war and they're not sure what to do with themselves. That was never Percy's problem. You see, he found the courage to serve in war through the forgiveness that he found in Jesus Christ. He was able confidently to be willing to give his life away and indeed to give his life away for the sake of others because he knew the one who died for him. So when he came home, having survived the war, it was no problem for him to say, it's time for me to keep giving my life away for others. 
and he served in this church for decades. Unfortunately, Percy is 98 now, 99? 98. So he's not able to be with us anymore on a regular basis, which is why some of you younger folks haven't gotten to know him. That's your loss. We were with him yesterday in the hospital, and you'd think, because this would be me, you'd think that if you're in the hospital, you'd be upset and irritated and wanting to just get out of there as soon as you possibly could. You'd think you'd be sick of it and just, ah, let me out of here. I want to go home. Because that's me when I'm in the hospital. But Percy was fine. We walked in. He was sitting there, happy as a clam. We walked in. We said, how's it going, Percy? He says, well, I'm still here. He makes fun of the fact that he knows he's about to die. It doesn't bother him because he knows the one in whom he has trusted. And he makes the comment. He says to me, you know, I don't know why the Lord still leaves me here. I mean... Come on already, you know, let's go. He's ready. And I told him, I said, Percy, I would love for you to lead the prayer on Easter Sunday at the church. We'll bring you to church. And he says, yeah, I'd like to do that, but I may not be here on Easter Sunday. I might already be gone home to the Lord. And so we laugh and we chuckle and we get to talking and we kind of go forward in the conversation. Ten minutes goes by, we're talking about other things and he'll stop and he'll say, yeah, like I said, I, I just don't know why I'm still here. So I said to him, because you're going to come pray at First Baptist on Easter Sunday. That's why you're still here. I just told you. You got a reason for being here. And he's, he laughs. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. But I, I so want you to meet this man. Because when he steps to this pulpit, if we can get him here on Sunday morning. I told you the deacons earn a step above. Here's a 98-year-old man that is frail. 98-year-old man who is frail, who has come to the end of his life. But he commands respect everywhere he goes. And I want that for you young people. When I think of all of our deacons, Joe and John, Dr. Tom, I admire not that they came, they were here for a day or a year, but that they took upon themselves the greatest burden. And they stood the test, not for a short period of time, but across decades. You want to talk about people who are confident in their faith? I mean, here's a man who's making jokes at his own death that he's waiting for. You don't get much more confident than that. First Baptist Church, pursue service and aspire to the greatest possible service that you can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and your word. We thank you for the truth that you reward those who give themselves to you and serve you and invest in your church. Now, Father, if there are any here today who are wondering about what course of action they ought to take with their life, what, what pursuit that they should run down, what trail they should chase down after you, I pray, God, you'd open their eyes to the possibilities and the rewards and the blessings of sacrifice of service, of building up your people, the family of God, and serving in the household of the Lord. I pray, God, that you would do that because we need deacons in order to preserve the gospel for the next generation. And so I pray, Lord, that you begin to call forth those individuals that you would have to serve here and to begin 
to take over the responsibilities from those who have served us so well for so many, many, many years beforehand. We thank you for them, and we pray you continue to provide for your people now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.